Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Our happy Monday, people. Welcome to On the Tape. I am Dan Nathan, joined by Guy Adami and, as always, Liz Young. That's EY from SoFi. She is the head market strategist. Welcome, people. She's more than that. Can I tell you something? That's one of her titles, but she is so much more. Hello, Dan. Uh, hello, Liz. You are beaming today because your Green yeah. Bay Packers just did the unthinkable on their home opener last night. Good for you. They did. They did. Sloppy first half. Got it together at halftime and uh, 18 unanswered points to beat the Saints at home. Thank God for that. P- pretty amazing. We got a big show. We're going to rip through some stuff here. Guy and I had a great conversation with Lee Robinson. He's the founder and chief investment officer at Altana Wealth. Guy, I think you and I both really enjoyed that conversation. Lee has a really long long career, finding asymmetric opportunities in the markets. We went through some of the ones in the past, some of the ones that he's focused on now, how he manages risk in this sort of environment. He gave us his macro outlook. That was fabulous. But again, like I said, today we got a lot going on. There's some big earnings in the market this week. There's some big deadlines. We're going to talk a little bit about possibly this looming government shutdown. And also it is Yom Kippur. My people atone for their sins today. And I thought that maybe we could all atone for a market sin that we inflicted really probably on ourselves in 2023. I know I have a couple of them, so we'll get into all that here. All right, Guy, let's talk about this looming shutdown. I know that you spent some time reading about it over the weekend. There was some data I saw out of Axios. This would be the 22nd government shutdown in five decades. Okay, so this deadline is on September 30th. Talk to me a little bit about how dysfunctional our government is that they are willing to shut down the government, not pay its employees, not pay a whole host of other things, cause market disarray, economic disarray. This is one of those things that just causes lots of companies and individuals just to put off spending plans and a whole host of other things. What do you think? Are we going to have this week? And will the markets, is that kind of a little bit of last week? Are we starting to price that in a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't think the market sell-off that we saw last week and potentially the weakness we're seeing early today is on the back of that. Maybe it's some of it. I I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think the market is really fully comprehending what it could mean. But I'll also say this, and I hate the expression, it's different this time. However, there seems to be a very vocal minority that seems hell-bent on pushing this thing to the 11th hour and maybe pushing it through that and to see what happens. Former President Trump has said in a couple interviews that, you know what, let the government shut down. Let's see what happens. Maybe it's much ado about nothing. I'm paraphrasing. So I think there are people that believe that, and I think they're going to push. The sell-off that we're seeing in the market, I think, is predicated on other things that we will talk about, but I don't think it's taking into consideration what could potentially happen in six days. With that said, historically, we get to the 11th hour and they figure things out. 
they push things forward. It just feels a little odd this time. Yeah, Liz, we have a VIX at 18. We have a VIXIN at 22. We have not seen those levels in a little bit is just as far as short-term volatility readings. And as Guy said, former President Trump, it's interesting that his Kevin, you remember he, he called him his Kevin, is really trying to avert a shutdown, it seems like. And it really is a small, like you said, Guy, vocal minority in the Republican Party that want to do this and can make some waves here. Do you think the markets last week, we had a little downward volatility. It had definitely a little bit of a tone. Are we pricing anything in right now, especially with a 10-year yield at 4.5%? First of all, I think it's funny that we're talking about a VIX at 18 and saying, oh my gosh, it's at levels we haven't seen in a while. It just goes to show the environment that we've been in, right? VIX is still below 20, and we think that 18 is high compared to what it's looked like. So there's been, in my opinion, a pretty big disconnect in what the VIX is showing us and what the actual tone of the market is and the actual underlying sentiment of investors, I think that there's a lot more nerves out there than what the VIX is really reflecting. As far as a government shutdown, the other thing about this is I feel like this is one of those stories similar to like when we talk about the dollar losing reserve currency status, we talk about this on a cycle. It's like it happens every six months to a year. It's been happening for my entire career. It will continue happening for the rest of my career. We'll talk about government shutdowns. I feel like what usually happens that causes a lot of volatility in the markets is that it does go until the 11th hour, typically on a Sunday night for whatever reason. And we find out late on a Sunday night and then the markets open on Monday and either we're happy or we're sad. So I think this particular situation is coming at a time when we've seen a massive sell-off in treasuries. We have fragility in the treasury market. We have not enough appetite, not enough buying appetite for treasuries and a, a period of time when yields have continued support to even move a little higher because of inflation, because of tightening, because of everything else that we all know is very present. So that being said, if there is a shutdown, I think that this is one that probably is more painful for markets to digest than others in the past. What's interesting is typically when we get up to these events over the last 10, 15 years, when there's been some sort of potential negative event that the market doesn't take into consideration, when that event is averted, the market rallies on the back of that event being missed, which is mind boggling to me. But that's what we've seen a lot of over the last 12 or 15 or so years. It will be interesting to see if, in fact, they do come to some agreement, some accord, if the market rallies on the back of it. Or as if I said, you know, the market's not looking at this at all. That, to me, is going to be a real good tell. Yeah, interestingly, the S&P closed horribly. It closed on the low of the week, okay? It started the week near 4,500, closed at 4,320 or so. It closed below its 50-day, below its 100-day moving average, and that 200-day moving average down there at 4,190. If it were to retrace that move, that would bring us back to that kind of May breakout level that we've talked about a lot. That would be a 10% peak to trough decline. Right now, we're down about six and a quarter percent from those recent highs. So I think that's interesting, Guy. And you've also mentioned this on many occasions, that when you think about consumer consumer confidence, sometimes it's just an overlay, right, of the S&P 500 and where it's trading. And some of the data, and, and we'll throw this in the show notes, there was an article in CNBC.com over the weekend talking about credit card delinquencies. And they're at 3.6% right now, up 1.5% from the recent bottom. Goldman Sachs sees them going up another 1.3% to about 5% at a time when Americans owe more than $1 trillion on credit cards. So many of those are floating rates. Many of those rates are above 20% or so. So guy, talk to me about what that kind of negative wealth effect might be if the stock market were to retrace a bunch of the gains that it's made so far this year. The S&P is up 12.5%. The NASDAQ 100 is up 34%. The NASDAQ composites up 26%. If we were up low single digits, that means that many people who own many individual stocks are down again this year in those stocks because we've spent a lot of time talking about what the equal weight S&P looks like versus the market cap weighted one where 10 stocks have done all of the heavy lifting and account for most of the gains. So it's interesting, and I know you're not suggesting this, but it's important and it's somewhat nuanced, but it's not intended to be. It's not up 1.6%. It's up 1.6 percentage points which if you were to make it a percentage, it's up probably 40 or 50%. And Goldman Sachs seems to think there's another potential for a 30 or 40% move. So percentage points obviously are different than percent moved. And it doesn't seem like a big deal. It is a big deal because typically this doesn't move to the extremes that we're seeing in a short period of time. And as you mentioned, now north of a trillion dollars in a rising interest rate environment, 
Elizabeth talks about this, you're going to start to see credit cards diminish in terms of spending, not because things are getting better, because people aren't spending anymore. And that, to me, is this sort of line of demarcation. We push it through a trillion. Things will start to slow. Delinquencies will continue. And I just don't think the market fully comprehends what a move of that magnitude means. There's a couple of reasons why people could stop spending on credit cards, right? I've long believed that consumers will keep spending as long as they feel employed. So far, the labor market has not cracked. So there's not anything out there that's screaming to me that suddenly people feel like they're being laid off or they're going to be laid off or that they're going to have trouble getting another job. I'm actually curious, and, and I don't really know how to confirm this. If there's somebody listening who can confirm this or figure it out, please let us know. I wonder if because credit card debt went up so quickly, we had talked about that for a while and said at some point there's going to be a negative effect of that. I wonder if there are a lot of consumers out there that either started to knock up against their credit limit and had to stop spending or got to a point where they couldn't really meet their monthly payments. And then you see that happen in delinquencies. You start to see delinquencies push out to 60 days, then they lengthen out to 90 days. The recovery, as I think many people know, once you get past 90 days, the recovery rate is pretty low. So that could be what's happening. It could be that we just got maxed out in a lot of places and there isn't enough money to be spending in order to make those payments. Not to mention, obviously, student loan payments coming back online. I don't know how many consumers with a lot of credit card debt are now on the hook to start paying their student loans again. So it could be that we're just maxed out credit-wise, which is not a good place to be if and when the labor market does cool, right? Because then you see delinquencies spike, defaults start to happen. So delinquencies are different than defaults. You start to see defaults happen. And obviously, credit cards are unsecured debt. And that's a tough spot to be for the financial sector. Yeah, it's interesting because we're headed into an election year, obviously, in 2024. And some of the polling that the Biden administration is getting on the economy, despite the fact that every day, like folks like us who look at the markets, we're saying the markets are doing just fine and the economic data is just fine, which has made the Fed's job that much tougher. But through a whole host of different things, look at political polling, right? Like the, the way that, let's say, Democrats are viewing the incumbent and the job that that administration is doing. They're doing horribly. Just look at the polls. And so I, I just think that's a really interesting thing and almost speaks, Liz, a little bit to what you're talking about is individual people, how they feel about their own finances, how they feel about their wage growth, how they feel about job security, how they feel about food inflation, how they feel about energy costs and, and filling a tank of gas. So like all those sorts of things, I think it's a good lens to think about this thing. And we're going to be hearing about this again and again. So to me, I think that's interesting. I, I want to hit towards a topic that we spent a lot of time in 2023 talking about recession. And Bloomberg had an article, Stocks Flash Recession warning as troubled spreads to industrials. So they're talking about weakness in small caps, which we talked about with you last week, Liz, a little bit, but they're also talking about weakness in the industrial sector. And they give a whole host of data and how when you have these two things weak together in the stock market, that's usually signaling some sort of economic malaise that could lead to a recession. Liz, you talked about the lag effect, right, of all of these rate hikes. Last week, we learned from the Fed that they seem very intent on higher for longer, even if they're not going to be hiking rates that much more. Talk to me a little bit about what those two areas of the stock market are saying to you about the economy right now. First of all, we talk a lot about the seven or 10 names that have held up the market this year. If you look actually under the surface, the S&P 500, only 44% of S&P 500 constituents are trading above their 200-day moving average right now. So any propping up of the market that's happening is likely to be narrowly led. And the internals, what we talk about is the internals are what's happening under the surface. There's a lot of different ways we can say that. Lift up the hood, pull back the curtain, whatever you want to call it. The internals are not strong and they are not broadening out. And now you've got, as you mentioned, Dan, small caps weakening. You've also got, I have a tweet from this morning about the cyclicals versus defensives pair. And that's basically long cyclicals, short defensives. It's been propped up and it typically tracks the economic surprise index. The city economic surprise index is the most widely used. That's rolled over a bit. It had been propped up for a good portion of the year because economic data had come in much stronger than expected. But now the cyclicals versus defensives pair has rolled over, which is where industrials uh, have seen that effect. And the economic surprise index has rolled over. So pair that with the weak internals, right? Weak breath. And pair that with something like the leading economic indicators, which includes the S&P 500. And you've got 
constant downward movement in the LEIs. You've got a six-month moving average that is contracting more than negative 3%, which when that happens, there has always been a recession to follow. So there are a lot of indicators out there right now. And I think parts of the market are finally waking up to say, you know what, some of this is pretty indisputable. We can't carry on and say that everything is fine. We should whistle past the hiking graveyard even longer. And I think it's healthy. I've said this before. I think that this pullback has been pretty orderly, but it's healthy because it's rational. The Russell small cap, so the IWM, the ETF, it made an all-time high, again, not coincidentally, in November of 2021, I think north of $240-ish. Obviously, like everything else, it sold off. So a couple times now, and we saw it in August of 2022, traded up to 200 and failed. Traded up to basically 200 in February of this year and failed. And then recently, I think at the end of July, we got up to about 199 and change, effectively 200 and seemingly have failed. As Liz will tell you, big part of the Russell are small and regional banks, and the bounce in those stocks made sense vis-a-vis what happened in March or April of this year. Now, seemingly, Dan, a lot of these things are giving it back. And we'll talk about banks. I don't want to jump the gun here, but they're not trading particularly well. And again, the Russell, which topped out, again, November of 2021, so effectively two years or so ago, you know, the underperformance vis-a-vis the broader market, I think it's something to take in consideration. And I say it all the time, the most economically sensitive names live in this ETF, and they're telling a much different story than the broader market has been telling until recently, at least. Yeah. And your point, Guy, though, large cap banks trade horribly. Just look at the Citigroup and and see where that's trading. Look at Bank America. Wells Fargo's retraced a lot of the outperformance that it had since the regional banking crisis. JP Morgan is all the way back towards that breakout level. That looked like it was off to the races about a month ago. And I guess you just lump that in there with industrials, with small caps. What are mega cap banks saying about the healthy economy? And listen, we're sitting here, and I don't know if we've had too much positive to say about the economic outlook, about the markets and what they're telling us. But Liz, try to help us find a bright spot here, because if anything, if it wasn't for what I've been calling this kind of AI virus that has affected the large cap stock market, we're not in a great market after a year that was dismal in 2022. And and we know that what got things going in the back half of 2020 and, and most of 2021 was just the monetary and the fiscal stimulus that continued into last year. And then we had another bout of sort of monetary stimulus during the regional banking crisis. And that added a a whole heck of a lot of fuel to the fire into the summer and everything like that. But it really feels this thing is coming undone a little. And when I say undone, I don't mean we're headed for a crash or anything, but the thing that makes me most worried when I look at some of the internals of the stock market is the reliance on a handful of stocks. And then I guess what stocks like JP Morgan, Bank America, Citigroup, and some of these regional banks are saying it feels like March, April might have just been an amuse-bouche to what might be coming with rates going at 4.5% and higher on the 10-year because that mark-to-market, held-to-maturity issue, if there's another run in the banks, what does that mean for the backstop that has to happen for much larger banks than an SVB and a signature list? You asked me to find a bright spot. The bright spot, I think, is number one, if we're focusing on banks, As Guy has mentioned, as you both have mentioned, banks are not trading well. So valuations are not inflated in banks, right? Valuations are not inflated in financials. So we're not at a point where if we did hit the skids again, if we had another issue or incident, much like what happened in March, there's not that much to give back. There's not a ton of air to let out of the balloon in valuations and financials. So that doesn't mean they can't fall further, but this isn't something where you know everything is sky high and it's going to come crashing down in, in a huge fashion like that. I think the other bright spot is, I'm hoping, positioning of investors. Now, yes, there has been a lot of money that flowed into those big names, but I also think over the last year and a half, people probably own more money market funds and more treasuries than they ever have before, and at least bonds that are paying some kind of coupon. So let's say, let's just play out if things do completely fall apart, we confirm a recession, the labor market cool, all all of that. Let's say all of that happens. Even if rates rise, even if yields go up initially in response to energy prices, inflation surprising on the upside, they are likely to come back down. So if people are exposed to parts of the treasury market or they're sitting in money market funds getting paid while they wait, perhaps they're a little bit more protected from a big stock market crash than they would have been if we were doing this 
in March, or if we were doing this even at the end of 2022. So that would be the bright spot that I would try to find. I do think the bright spot then, if you add on to that, is that correlations seem to be coming back down among large asset classes again. So treasuries, if we do hit some kind of issue, if we do hit some kind of fear-based issue, hopefully treasuries rally, stocks fall. That's what you want to see. That's what makes a diversified portfolio work. And that is the way that rational investments should work. And I think over the last five years or so, maybe more so over the last couple of years, we've been conditioned to believe that rational investing and diversified portfolios do not work because everything gets saved by monetary policy. If that's not the case, we need it to work again. And I think that would be the case if everybody is positioned the way that I am assuming they are. So that's your bright spot. I appreciate that. All right, Guy, this week we have some big earnings, Costco, Nike, Micron. Uh, Micron, really interesting to me. The SMH, which again, I, I think we spent some time last week talking about NVIDIA, Taiwan Semi make up more than 30% of the weight as the number one and two weighted stocks in the semiconductor ETF. Micron is traded really well on, on a relative basis because the SMH is down about 12% from its recent highs here. Micron's down, I don't know, five-ish percent or so, 5% implied move in the options market. Thoughts on Micron? Is there anything that they might tell us? Uh, I don't know about CapEx, about demand, about DRAM pricing and, and the like here. Is, is it going to save the semis? Taiwan Semi does not act particularly well. NVIDIA is down maybe 16, 17% from its recent highs here. Is Mark, Micron going to save the day for the semiconductor yeah. sector? If the semis need Micron to save the day, we're in trouble. Micron, to your point, has traded pretty well since January when I think it was a $50 stock. A series of higher highs and higher lows until recently when we just basically topped out i think dan around 71 or 72 which is the same level we topped out at the end of july and that's the first sort of break in trend so number one that's something to take into consideration and as much as people want to say micron's no longer a cyclical company it's a highly cyclical company to a certain extent highly commoditized company as well if the future or the fate or the short-term fate of the smh rests in its hands of micron i think that's a problem but as you also mentioned Textbook double top in terms of SMH that we pointed out a number of times. And I do think higher interest rates are very difficult for these stocks to navigate for sure. But the one that I'm looking at, aside from Nike, which I think is interesting, is not traded well. I think it breached 90 bucks to the downside today, is Costco, which I think made an all time high in April of last year, north of $600 or so, has traded okay. It's basically been treading water. I think it's trading about 555, 560 now. Problem, of course, with Costco is valuation. And I think they really have to say some incredible things in order for them to maintain levels given the current valuation that they're seeing. Yeah, I agree with that in Costco. And, and I guess you could just say the fact that Walmart has massively outperformed. Most of the big box retailers made a new all-time high within the last month or so and has really hung around here. Costco looks fairly similar, but again, both of those are pushing it on valuation, especially relative to many of their peers. And many of their peers act downright horrible. To me, Costco, what are you playing for to the upside? Maybe it gets to 600 bucks or something like that. But I think you probably have one up, two down sort of scenario, especially if the economy were to start to weaken and folks are starting to pay attention a bit more on valuation. Liz, one area where folks have been paying attention as it relates to consumer-oriented names on valuation is consumer discretionary. And Guy just mentioned Nike is down 30% from its highs in January. So they report Wednesday after the close. I'm not gonna ask you specifically to comment on Nike, but what does that say to you? Exposure overseas, exposure to China, exposure to a rising dollar. The Dixie is nearing 106 here. A whole host of things going on here. Is the higher end consumer getting a little bit tapped? And I guess you could point to Lulu and they had good results a couple of weeks ago, but again, these guys have a lot more international exposure, um, let's say than a Lulu does. I think there's a few things going on here. Obviously, the international consumer, so whether you look at Asia, you're looking at China, I don't care where you're looking, Europe, they're not doing well, right? They're dealing with higher inflation, some countries dealing with even tighter monetary policy than we're dealing with and slower growth. So the international consumer is not where you want to go to find undiscovered growth right now. The U.S. consumer I feel like is getting tapped out or is at least pulling back and saying, maybe we should wait or maybe what we talked about before. Okay, we've spent enough on credit. Let's slow it down a little bit. We can't afford the monthlies anymore. So this is something, and last week on halftime, I think I mentioned this on Market Call on Thursday, 
I used my final trade as sell consumer discretionary because I do feel like there are cracks coming. So this is something, this is why you have to be careful. People always say never bet against the US consumer. You know what? I would bet against them in this particular moment, at least for the near term, because consumers are weak handed in the sense of retail spending. So I would be careful here. I think that these stocks shouldn't be doing all that well. All right, listen, we covered a lot. I'll, I'll atone for my markets in here. I'm not gonna put that on you guys. One of the things that I think I was very steadfast in, especially in the spring, is I thought that NVIDIA and I thought that Tesla were just great market shorts for a whole host of things, decelerating trends. And, and Tesla is just like weakening, just I, I thought weakening fundamentals that were very clear about the earnings and the guidance that they kept on giving. The stock sold off 30% from its recent highs. I've had good trades, I've had bad trades. The NVIDIA one was just downright stupid. I was like a moth to flame with that one. But one of the things that I really like about what we do here is, again, I say this all the time, we show up every day. We're talking about it. We're putting our money where our mouth is and, and we will atone for our sins. So that was mine here on a Monday on a Yom Kippur. I really appreciate you guys being here with us early this morning. Stick around for my conversation and guys with Lee Robinson. He's the founder and chief investment officer at Altana Wealth. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome to the On The Tape podcast. Guy Adami here, joined as always by Dan Nathan for this portion that we call Off The Tape. And today we're going Off The Tape, Dan, with Lee Robinson, the founder and the chief investment officer at Altana Wealth. Lee, how are you? I am very good. How are you, sir? Doing well, thank you. I know you're a fan of Danny Moses of Big Short Fame. We'll talk about all those things. But tell us a little bit about yourself. I have found that our viewers want to know about the person that we're talking to, deep dive into his or her background. How charming and wonderful I am, all the truth. <laughs> I'm sure that there's, at some point, there's the, the points that sort of intersect. Yeah, so my, my background, just for the for people that, obviously lots of people don't know me, I've been in the industry for 30 years, background mathematics degree, actually got into the derivatives market initially with Paribas, equiderivatives, lucky or unlucky enough to trade through all that Nikkei crisis of the early 90s, I worked at Bankers Trust, I'm sure everybody remembers Bankers Trust, I traded bond options, interest rate derivatives in 94 was interesting bear market, bond options, bull market 93, and then went on to do credit derivatives, both at Banks Trust and at Deutsche. And then at 98, I was kindly invited to go to Tudor, very big American hedge fund also in, in the UK and built their merger arb event driven business in through till 2001. Whereupon I went out on my own with a friend of mine, Theo Thanos, and built a company called Trafalgar Asset Managers, which is a hedge fund most well known for merger arbitrage and credit, 
and a few other things. And then we sold a stake to Goldman Sachs Peter Sill in 08, April 08, as I'm sure you imagine was not the world's worst timing. And then we, we traded through all the crisis. We were very fortunate to be nominated for awards in that year. We were in the big short trade, which you mentioned earlier, and a few others we can talk about. And then I decided the world had changed after 08, and I thought I need to maximize turns. And I felt like a lot of the business, Merger Up, Vertical Up, Long Short, a lot of those businesses became commodities, and I wanted to do more interesting things with higher returns. So I set up Altana Wealth to manage my own money. And the AL of Altana Wealth is for alignment of interest. We always have our own money in our trades. And that really goes down really well with high net worth and family offices who want skin in the game, particularly post all the crisis and Madoff and all those problems. And not so much with institutions, funny enough, but with high net worth and the AL for Alpha. And it's always nice to have a, a name with an A at funds. But yeah, we're really looking for niche ideas. We're small. We're a few hundred million dollar firm. We're not a big boy. So we have to play in the smaller areas and we tend to find areas where they're either too small for the Blackstones, the Goldmans, et cetera, or there aren't many institutions involved and we can be a big player in a small pond rather than a small player in a big pond. Give, give us a sense, Lee, of you mentioned that you spent some time at Tudor and a fabulous hedge fund and you were trading some very sophisticated products prior to that at some of the, the world's largest banks or so. How does the structure that you've set up with Altana, you know, how does it mesh with the current investment environment when you think about it? Because you went out of your way to say, listen, with a few hundred million, we're not one of these 10 plus billion hedge funds or, or some of those, these things have gotten astronomical. And I think Guy and I and a lot of our listeners know that in this business, you're competing often for resources, you're competing for ideas. There's a whole host of things. So talk to me a little bit about why investors come to you. Your pedigree is amazing. It sounds like you're really good at identifying situations where risk reward can be very favorable, especially when you're thinking about it in the right context, but not a context where you're judged against peers or indices, if you will. So talk to us a little bit about the uniqueness of Altana. It's about making money at the end of the day. And some of these very big firms, i take a good example. If you wanted to go buy SVB loan book in March when it blew up, there's probably only, let's say, 50 firms in the world who've got enough bench strength to go out there and review that in two weeks. You need a, a team of 100 people. You need a big team to do that. And when I started in, in the hedge fund industry in, in, the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was about gathering information. And we you know we could gather information in ways that in the order individual and even some of the banks couldn't do by just digging and deep, translating, you know, going to meetings in places, meeting companies. And then the internet just took off. And by 03, I had this conversation with Theo in 03. I said, this business has become from an information gathering to information filtering, at which point you need big budgets to buy computer power and people and quants and text to, to analyze if you're in convertible art, if you're in merger art, if you're in long short equity. But there are lots of other areas but still quite manual. You know, some of the emerging market stuff, some of the distressed, some of the new technologies, carbon, crypto, that you, know, that you haven't got that information. So we want to play in spaces where you don't need a $10 million budget just to switch on the lights. So, and there are still those places. Secondary bond market trading is still a very small pool compared to 2008. It was a 350 billion overnight market. It's now a 35 billion. Guess what? There are opportunities that weren't there in 08. So things evolve and you just keep going. So I think the asset management industry, hate to say it, it's far too many. It's going to stratify. There's going to be smaller niche guys. There's going to be this big Black Rock, Citadels, whatever out there at the top. And in the middle where we were, which was a two, $3 billion hedge fund, I just don't think there's the space for them anymore. I don't think they have an edge. And so, yeah, that's what we do. And we're trying to make money with our own money and we're trying to make money for others. But most of our strategies aren't scalable. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff we're looking at, we're talking at maybe a few million dollars. But just to finish off, I look at some of these big distress firms and I trade in the distress space and they've got billions of dollars, right? And I was looking at Lebanon recently, Lebanon, which is distressed, it's trading below 10, it's in a very bad way. And what's a big block came for sale, right? And it was 150 million face at seven cents. We're talking $10 million. How is a big distress fund really deploying a billion dollars today? It's not. It's doing stuff at 60, 70, 80. It's doing high yields. I think the industry is going through a, a change and it, you, we're going to see a stripping out of people. And for us, we have no choice. We're not at the big end. So in some ways, we have to play there anyway. So 
You're also trying to make money with a four pillar philosophy for investing. Can you speak to that? Look, it's it's not nice to say, but our industry really should have a Hippocratic oath, a bit like the doctors, right? They should be do no harm to your client, right? A law firm or a doctor has this thing. And our industry doesn't have that, it has conflicts of interest along the way. And it is your money after all. And you should get the best liquidity terms that you can get, not the best liquidity terms that suits the manager to get their management fees for the next 12 months. So because we've got our own money alongside people, we're always trying to get the best liquidity terms. And if we've got something that needs a lock up, we'll tell people, we'll be honest, it's a distress situation, it needs to be locked up for two years. Uh, but if it's possible to trade with daily liquidity, we'll try and give it because we're not actually trying to lock up people for management fees. One thing I'd say about Altana and Trafalgar, my previous firm, we have made multiples in performance fees to what we've made in management fees. I'm not poor and I'm starving and I'm not complaining, but that's what I want to do. I want to say to people, I've made more money from you from being really good than for just turning up and clipping coupons. That's our pillars. And we as an industry don't have that. And that's good for me because I think when people walk in the door, they go, okay, he lost me some money, but you know what? He lost his own money as well. And he's going to fight to get it back. Whereas if he's a salesman at a big bank, he's, oh, the, the ship sunk, but it's okay. I'm on shore. It's not a problem. I'll, I'll get some new passengers on the next ship. So I, I just think that's something that very few firms have globally, skin in the game. So you mentioned, Lee, some distress situations. You mentioned it like it's at certain levels that might not bubble up, right, to page A1 in, in the FT or, or the Wall Street Journal. It seems like you guys really do your work. You're trying to find things. Uh, before others are on to them. But you also have, it looks like a bent, as our, Dan, our friend Danny Moses likes to say, he loves calamity. He loves finding yeah. situations yeah. where, and you used the term asymmetric before, where there is really asymmetric sort of benefits if you get it right. But you also understand sometimes that's a low probability outcome that happens. Give us some examples in your career, and, and we could talk about the mortgage crisis and a little bit about what you were seeing then. And then also let's apply some of the things that you learned from that, from that trade, if, if you will. And I know there were multiple trades in it and, and how you've applied that to different situations over the last 15 years. Let me talk about the big short alongside Bitcoin because they're both illustrative of the same, same thinking. I'm going to give a little plug for Greg Lippmann, but Greg Lippmann and the team at Deutsche who came with the big short traders. I went to see it. We were ex-Bankers Trust. Theo and I, ex-Deutsche as well. So we knew all these guys and we did a lot of business with them. So they invited us to see the big short trade in late six. And I walked out the door and I always remember clearly, Theo said to me, he said, what do you think? I said, look, the hairs on my arms are sticking up. And he said, why? I said, you know what? This is, this is trading at, you know, 96 or whatever it is. It's not going to go much higher than 98 in the next four years. That means I've got 1,000 trading days for a calamity to happen or just to trade down five or six points. It's not just about the probability of it going to 20 and what it did and the team there being right. I said, that's icing on the cake for me. This thing's not going to really trade up much. And I only need a few bad days in the next 1,000 for me to make a really good return. Whereas our current hedges, where they're just rolling off and if nothing goes wrong, we lose money. And the same with Bitcoin. I said to people at the beginning, Bitcoin could halve, it could go down 90% can go up 90 times. What, like the dot-com, it could go all the way up. You take some profits along the way and it still goes to zero. That's better. That gives you lots of optionality versus a private investment where you can, it's a venture capital, you buy it and it either goes up 10x to zero. So I think sometimes when we're pitching ideas to clients, it's not just about the start and finish. It's also about the pathway. Have you got pathways to make money? And the big short, Bitcoin and a lot of other things, some of the AI stocks, some of the equities in the world, they have pathways where you take money. And one of the things we did really with crypto, for example, is we had a, a sales ladder. But the stuff was volatile as hell. And I wrote this sales ladder day one. I said, if this goes up 4x, I'm taking 25 off the table. If it goes up 10x, I'm taking another 25% of the table. And we, I wrote this down before we even invested. Because I knew there'd be scary days and I knew there'd be volatile days and there'd be greedy days where you're feeling greedy. And I would go back to myself and Lee, why do you have four times as much here as when you started? You shouldn't, right? People don't think about exits and pathways enough, I think, in investment. And I think that's something that we do reasonably well. No, think of, I want you to amplify that because I say all the time, you have to, before you even put a trade on, you have to have your exit strategy. Whether you're right or you're wrong, you have to know, but you have to stick to it. And I say, 
take emotion out of the equation. And by writing down those plans and writing yep. down those steps, you've effectively done that. Can you sort of amplify that answer? Yeah, I, I, you've summed it up. And that's true of all things in life, I think. You know, if you're going to invade Ukraine or Iraq or whatever, you've got to have an exit plan, right? Not, getting in is easy, right? Getting married is easy, right? It's not, if you get it wrong, getting out is pretty difficult. So I think you always start from what are my potential exits? I'm wrong just cutting it or the world changes or whatever. What am I, what, how do I get out of this position? Where would I want to take profits? And then you draw pathways of things that can happen right along the way. And there you then you have lots of different probabilities. And then you should be able to say on balance, this is a great entry point or not. And I don't think people do that enough. And I think I'll give you a good example. I'll give you a really good example of a trade I hated this year, right? The trade I've hated this year was being pushed first half, was being long the 10-year treasury, okay? It's being pushed really hard by, some, by the way, some extraordinarily bright people who I have an enormous respect for, whether it's the Rosenbergs, the world, or Ralph Powell's, the Real Vision, these are super smart guys. But I hated it as a trade. It was like, it's a three and a half percent. And if you have a terrible recession, people might think it's short-lived, but the 10-year might only go down to three. It's not obvious to me, just because we have a terrible recession, it's going to be like 08, 09, and we go to zero. It might be a short-lived soft landing. Where are you going to make money on that trade? Yet nobody at the beginning of this year thought rates were going to go above five and a half percent. And yet here we're sat there now at the moment. What were your pathways to make money on that 10-year trade? There was only really one, which was like an ultra horrible sudden crash and landing in, in the US or, or maybe globally. There weren't many other pathways, but there were yeah. loads of pathways with treasury issuance going to be, your new treasury issuance is going to be big this year because of your, your pre-election giveaways. I'm not just picking on Biden. Every president does it in year three. So it was a horrible trade from a pathway point of view, and he had not many doors to exit, right? So let's talk about that because that's a great point. We were on Fast Money Guy last night. We were talking about a year ago today, we were talking about where the 10-year yield was, where the dollar was, where crude oil was, where the equity market was, and it was much lower. I mean, at the time, equities were pricing in a hard landing, worse than mediocre recession. So here we are now, it's late September, 2023. We have the S&Ps up 16%. I, get, I know you're not benchmarked against these sorts of things, but the NASDAQ 100 is up 40%. And from a macro perspective, are you seeing some things? You just mentioned AI stocks. If I look under the hood, of large cap equities, I still see a small amount of stocks doing a great deal of heavy lifting. And they're associated oh, yeah. with yeah. a concept, though, that is yet to deliver, in my opinion, on, on the promise of changing every industry as we know it. And you have been through this. We have been through this in the late 90s. We saw all the financialization of the housing market and all the stuff that happened. They didn't end well. And I just wonder, are you starting to oh, see- Bubbles never end. Bubbles yeah. never end. And folks like us have a hard time. We can identify them. Making money on them popping is another story. Talk to us a little bit about how you're thinking about the current macro environment relative to how consensus came into this year. And how are you thinking we come out of this year into 2024? We spent a long time in the last 10 years, certainly some of the previous 10 years to that, saying that China was a growth engine. China was going to save us. U.S. Is, there have been periods where U.S. has been slow. Europe's always been slow. Uh, the U.S. just been slow some of the time. It's been a little bit hot, but in general, the U.S. hasn't been a hot market in the last 10 years. It's been some ups and downs. I'm talking about the economy, not the markets. But it's okay. China's doing well, kick ass. We can export there and blah, blah, blah. And now we're sat in a position where not only are we exporting less to China because of geopolitics, whatever, but also China's just having, it's having its 08, 09 credit crunch, right? Maybe or a savings and loan 90s if we're being kind, right? But it's going through the largest credit crunch in property by actual numerical numbers in the history of finance. And we're all sat here going, it doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter. China's not important. So that bugs me a lot, guys. It really bugs me that we sat here going, China's great. Oh, no, now it's insignificant. I don't think it is. I think China's a massive headwind. They're going to have a massive slowdown next two or three years. That's got to hit Europe. That's got to eventually hit large corporations in the US. I think that's worrying me. I am worried that nobody thinks we can have a six handle on rates. Nobody, including myself, thinks there's going to be a six handle on rates. Maybe there's one person, but <laughs> they're a very tiny amount. And when everybody thinks something different, it's usually wrong, right? So inflation is the oil price is certainly telling us some things the yield curve i think isn't telling us anything at the moment because the issuance window is so big but if rates are still where they are today at the end of october when that issuance window comes down i'll be starting to get worried as well so i think there's some there's a lot more to worry about 
I'm on record, but I'll say it again. I think 24 is going to be a very difficult year. I always felt 23, China reopening, after a terrible 22. I always felt this year was going to be okay. 24, I just think consumers slowing down. The, the rates will start kicking in, even for Americans with fixed rate mortgages. It still gets harder and harder. Cost of living, people in America have run down a lot of the savings from 2021. So yeah, I'm in the bearish camp for 24, I've got to say. Asymmetric risk creates asymmetric opportunity. Let's get granular a bit because you're seeing an opportunity of all things in Freddie and Fannie Jr. preferred shares, which is really deep end of the pool shit. Everything's got risk. At the end of the day, you can buy Google, Apple, or Microsoft and lose 50% from here. There's no reason why you can't, right? And you can buy, as we've seen, you can buy U.S. government bonds two years ago and, and lose 30, 40 points mark to market. There's nothing without risk. It's about entry point. And the junior prefs, I'm sure most of your, your I'll tell the story anyway, because some people might know it, but obviously Fannie and Freddie were built on the fact they could lend money to people and house prices wouldn't fall too much. And there wouldn't be, and there wouldn't be any problem with the consumer that was too bad. And guess what? They went crazily aggressive on uh, subprime going into 06, 07, 08. House prices did fall and you know, they were wiped out. So the U.S. government came in, took 80% of the company, saved them. No doubt they saved them. Then a couple of years later, they said, actually, we're going to sweep all the profits, all 100% of the profits, not 80 to us, the government. And quite rightly, all these hedge funds said, oh, what? that's against the laws, against the constitution, which I agree with, by the way. And they took them to court. And the bonds trade down. They traded down. They traded back up to about 50, 60, trade down to 40. And then Donald Trump got elected. And Donald Trump was obviously in the Republicans, more in the camp of reprivatizing this. They traded up again to about 60. Then over time, there's just been fatigue and they've lost a few lawsuits. And it hasn't gone very well for the, the, the hedge funds, the asset management industry. And just recently, they traded down to below 10. So terrible story, a lot of fatigue, 10. Why am I excited? I'll tell you why I'm excited. I'm excited because at some point, in the next 12 months, we will know who the Republican primary candidate is, most probably Donald Trump. Donald Trump has written several letters in support of this, been very vocal upon this. And at some point, it's possible the market prices in, obviously pricing a probability of Donald winning of, you tell me, 40, 45, 50%, depending where he's in the polls. And they'll say, if he wins, these things are going to trade at 75, 80 cents. So 80 cents times 40, 45, you're down at 30, 35 points versus getting in at eight today. So it's a nice nine months, 12 month trade. You, you don't stay in the trade post the election because you don't know who's going to win on the night. Now, add on top of that, this is where it gets juicy. They've just won a lawsuit the first time. They're getting two points, not very much. So instead of buying at eight with a risk to zero in the long run, eight down to two, risking six, bizarrely, not to be a surprise. The Democrats have been very keen talking up, making it private as well. They want more houses for more people. It's a vote winner. And the people they put in place over the last two or three years have all been pro-privatizing Fannie and Freddie. Now, the one last piece, which is not my idea, someone else pointed out, is the debt ceiling was put, deal was put in place a few months ago. Now, if the Democrats were to privatize this, not only would they be a stick, put a stick in the eye of Donald, they would also raise $100 billion maybe that they could spend next year, let's say, to win a few votes. There's a lot of other catalysts, and it's a nice 12-month trade. It's at eight not going to trade below five before the elections. You might go to zero in the long run, but it's not going to trade below that while there's a probability of the Republicans winning. You're looking at three, four downside. It might go to 30. That's, you know, 22 up. Yeah, 22 up, three down. I like those. I like those trades. Yeah. It's interesting. There's your, your equity derivatives hat coming on there. As yeah. far as, but talk to us a little bit. You mentioned having a plan going into a trade. And so when you think about you know, something like this, you're saying risk six to possibly make 20x, 30, whatever the number is. And you have a time horizon and you have some catalysts laid out. Guy and I get these questions and Danny all the time is like, how do you think about portfolio construction? You love this idea. The downside is limited. Sometimes the longer it takes to work, maybe you start adding to it when it starts softening a little bit and the position ends up getting a little bigger, but at least you have some targets where you take some profits. Talk to us about how you think about risk management other than just having predetermined levels where you'll cut risk good question. Or, or take it off. How do you question. think of it in the context of a portfolio and concentration and the like. If you asked every single manager on the planet what they're poorest at, they'd say asset allocation, right? I think we all could do a lot better at that. Let me just tell you how I think about it. So, I, and I'm talking here more for your, your, your individual or your high net worth than you are for the institution. But in a portfolio, 
you can barbell it. You can have 70, 80% of low risk treasuries, things like that. And then I think you have a portion that's high risk. I mean, that could be private capital locked up for 10 years that you think you're going to double your money on with some of these funds. It could be a biotech. It could be anything like that. And you say, I'd love to have 20 ideas in that 20% bucket, 30% bucket. So how do you size them? I size them about one to 2% of those brilliant ideas that I can make. When I say brilliant, they can make four, four to one or more risk reward, not one and a half. I'm talking about really good stuff. So why? Because if I put 1% in and it goes to half, I live to fight another day, particularly in a 5% environment. If I put 0.25% in and it goes up 10x, I'm kicking myself because I haven't really made enough money out of it. The way I see it is one to two, you're risking half to one to then make you know a meaningful difference. And I always remember, I can't remember who told me this story and I wish I could find the bloody quote. But some guy was in 87, lost money. Obviously, he lost money in his portfolio. Everyone lost money. But he made money because he had Microsoft in his portfolio and a reasonable size, right? And everything else was down and he made enough. And it, that's, you need those little outliers, particularly when rates are at zero, but even at five, you need those little outliers that make five to 10 alone to lift your year and lift your compounding. So, and I think depending on how much wealth you've got, some people have $1 million. They have to have it mostly invested in bonds and equities. Some people have hundreds, sometimes billions. The more you have, the more you can take those bets that they can go wrong and you can recover from. Because in theory, I could have five great trades this year and they all lose. And I can have five next year and they all win. So they don't always happen. You don't always happen two and a half, two and a half. But yeah, that's how I think. Risking one to two, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's Venezuela or whether it's Fannie and Freddie, you live to fight another day. But if it turns out great for you, go there. Now, if it's your own business and you're trying to build it, of course, you can put all your money in and you've got control. But when you're a minority and things like that, or it's a friend's recommended a stock that might go to the moon, it's that sort of size, I think, guys, in my opinion. Okay, Lee, you mentioned Bitcoin, and it's a topic that we spent a lot of time when we launched our podcast back in 2021 on, and we had a lot of really smart guests. And, and again, I think many of our listeners know I, I've been very crypto curious. I'm probably not that interested in Bitcoin and the blockchain as much as I am as maybe some of the other applications that we saw bubble up in and around Web3 and the like here. And I'm not talking about PFP, NFTs, and this and that, whatever. I was definitely curious about all of that stuff because to me, it just reminded me of the Wild West of the 90s, okay? But there was really investable for a period and then it crashed. And then there was, if you search through the embers, there were some things that ended up becoming the next trillion dollar market cap companies 20 years later, that that is the epitome of asymmetric here. And it sounds like you guys were early in the trade. Where are you now? And what is your near-term outlook? Because it, it's hung in there and there's some catalysts out there. But I was also a little surprised how quickly the excitement in and around the ETFs kind of came out of the market over the last kind of month or so. So talk to us a little bit about how you're positioned now and what are some of the catalysts you're focused on? Yeah. So we've been in Bitcoin since 2014. So we've seen some really riot, wild rides. And you said Wild West, Wild West squared, right? It's just yeah. incredible. But people forget and people beat, beat up Bitcoin. It's been the best performing asset in 10 of the last 13 years out of the major assets. Now, that's not the same as a dot-com or a, a, a bubble stock that does it once or maybe twice. It's been consistently surprising you. So from a pathway point of view, there's been plenty of options to be in and out, make money and lose money. Don't get me wrong. But what always flows me is that I've never known such a bifurcation in opinions. There are people, when I talk about Bitcoin, who literally want to vomit. They hate it. They get angry. There's FOMO or there's this is a fraud and blah, blah, which can't be the case. We're still around. 13 years later, it's, it's not it block, And they might love, what also makes it weird is they love blockchain, they hate Bitcoin. And then you've got this other group of believers where the people who have wallets with one Bitcoin or 100 Bitcoins have been increasing every year. So the number of people who own one Bitcoin has gone up. And people 100. So you've got a situation of long-term holders and haters. To me, it's a trade. From now until March, April next year, you want to be long. You might want to average in or you want to buy it today. That's your own decision. Why? Because in March, April, you get the halving, which means there's half as many coins coming out uh, every 10 minutes. Now, every other halving has driven the stock up as people got interested. And then you've got this extra thing. You've got five or six companies, including BlackRock, ARK, and others, who are trying to get an ETF. Now, at any time between now and March, because that's the deadline for the SEC for most of these companies, you could get an announcement that the ETF has been approved. At the moment, we've just got Grayscale winning its case against the SEC, which they might appeal. Looks likely you might see a headline. So 
nobody's going to want to be short going into the halving. Nobody's going to want to be short going into the ETF. So you could, and then going back to my main point, there are lots of holders who are long-term holders, lots of haters, lots of long-term holders with two catalysts. You could get a really big squeeze in this yeah. price, at which point we're going to tell our investors, let's take some money off the table. If it doesn't happen and we're wrong, and it hasn't rallied for the reason, whatever reasons it might be, we're going to say, you know what? The catalyst didn't work out. We're also going to take the money off the table and we're going to move on to the next thing. To me, that's a lovely trade for investors because it's a nice timeline. They can allocate 1% of their money, 2% max, and know that they're out inside six months. Yeah. And just really quickly, I, I like the framing of that. It's catalyst driven and you have a risk framework for it. So if we think about this kind of $25,000 level has been support, if I'm just looking at the chart since March, since the regional banking crisis, yeah. we haven't seen it above, let's say 32,000. Where do you stop? And again, I like bringing this back to our audience a little bit because maybe they haven't been focused on Bitcoin. It's maybe been dead money, but they can look at these catalysts and those catalysts make sense. You could have data around the halving. Okay, we've seen that over the course of its history. And then the idea, if you could also just zoom out a little bit, that if these ETFs do get approved, that there's a large amount of the investing public who would like exposure to Bitcoin, maybe in retirement accounts or whatever, but they don't want to buy spot and they don't want to buy futures. Is that part of the bullish case for the approval of those ETFs? And then we could see a half a trillion dollar market cap go to a trillion dollars over as individuals and as other investment professionals start allocating more and more to it. And then if you tie in the having you have the scarcity aspect so if there's more demand and less bitcoin being made then the price should go up and that's your asymmetric sort of trade yeah i think that i think the reason i would sell on the etf news is i think sell the news buy the rumor sell the news but black rock stroke arc stroke all these other great firms that are going out to do this etfs they're not suddenly going to get 100 billion dollars of inflows but what they are going to do from the date of approval to a few weeks later they're going to get their marketing material out there they're going to talk to institutions they're going to talk to wealth managers and these people who are uncomfortable holding the crypto keys or worried about custodial or whatever are going to go oh i'm dealing with a big firm now it's less of a worry you sell it afterwards right you probably buy it back again a few a month or so later what i don't know if people will buy bitcoin i don't know if institutions will buy Bitcoin, but i do know that those big firms are going to market it very hard. There's going to be advertisements in the papers and they're going to be doing uh, road shows. So who knows? That They couldn't do that until the ETFs approved. So they're not charities, these people, are they, to be honest? They're there to make money. So they're going to push it very hard. And 100 billion, as you say, it's a big move. 100 billion goes over 12 months into crypto. This thing's going to fly. It's not that liquid really on the, the free float really isn't that big. This is not meant to be a tricky question, but it's going to be because I don't know the answer to it. And as a, a good attorney, I should know the answer before I ask it. But as we're sitting here, 10 yields of four and a half percent. What should we be rooting for in terms of the U.S. economy? Rates going higher from here or rates going lower from here? And quite frankly, I don't know the answer. U.S. economy in general is in good shape, right? The, the unemployment numbers, are, even in a recession from here, let's say they got 2%. That will feel not so bad compared to 08, 09, when it went screaming up and COVID. So I, I think the U.S. economy is in a good shape in the next 6, 12 months. So what do we want? I guess the markets want a slowdown, leads to unemployment going up by that 100 to 200 basis points, but no more. That's the truth matter. That's what the market wants. Bonds rally, equities rally. I don't want that because I'm in the calamity camp. I'm not in any way here to tell you that I want that to happen. I think a buoyant economy is the worst problem for markets because, you know, the Fed has made it very clear that they don't want to cut rates until inflation is really in the back mirror. By the way, my personal view is inflation itself will be volatile in the next three or four years. We're reshoring. We're rebuilding the whole energy sector, both renewables and replacing Russian oil. That costs money. We've got the tailwinds that came from China from the euro, from the internet, they're all dissipating. So we're going to have more, to me, we're going to have a volatile set of interest rates and inflation anyway. Next report is my personal view. But yeah, I think the market's rooting for inflation to get down to that two, two and a half percent level and then for them to cut rates down to three. That's what it's rooting for. I just think that just sounds, sounds too easy, doesn't it? It sounds yeah. like it's, I just don't think the world lives like that. I mean, oil's now pushing a hundred. China's a mess. The US Treasury's, oh, seriously guys, it's out of control how much yeah. money they're spending. And that's not going to end well for America. And what doesn't end well for America does not end well for 
20 other countries in the world yeah. as well. Let's ask you one more tricky question because you did a great job with guys there. I love the way you frame the, the volatility of inflation. And Guy has been talking about this. Guy and I have been doing CBC's Fast Money together. He's been doing it for 17 years. I've been doing it with him since 2011. And he's been saying about inflation, careful what you wish for. It, it's not measured, pro you know, I mean, like you're literally one of the few guys who've been saying that I think publicly guy for over a decade. And now here we are. And so let's take a step back to March, April, when the Fed, which was battling inflation by raising interest rates, we had a 10 year that was still below 4% and something broke. And there's lots of folks who use that expression and may, maybe sometimes a little glib, but look at what happened with our regional banking sector, right? So I guess the last question I have is if you think that it was non-consensus back a year ago that rates were gonna go materially higher, they're breaking out right now, what breaks next? Because it really feels, and especially when you throw in that deficit spending and all in the election year and the geopolitical things, it seems a 16 or 17 VIX, which was just 13 and a half a week ago. And we can look at the curve and we can see that there's some risk being priced in. But at least for the here and now, with the S&P where it is, where equities in general, where they are, it doesn't feel like we're on great footing, especially if rates are going to go higher and inflation is going to stay volatile. It's a very strange market, as you alluded to earlier in that pre-conversation, we have six or seven stocks houring ahead and driving it. You asked me several questions. What's going to go wrong next? The obvious one is the property market, right? And then some of that is priced in, it's come down, but it's a long way from where buyers like me would say that's good value. And We've got several problems with with properties. The one obvious one is rates are higher. So when you're rolling over your loans, you've got to put new equity up. And property guys tend to be super optimistic and they never have any money. That's going to be a problem. But people also forget in Europe and to an extent in the US, not every state in the US, you've got to decarbonize your buildings. That costs money over time. And you get it back in yield over 20 years, but up front is a lot of money. So I think you're going to get a lot of people who just cannot make those payments and have to sell down into the stress market. And we've seen in Europe and to a lesser extent in the US, when the rates went up last year, the sellers were still here and the buyers were here. Not much happened. We're seeing now a lot of sellers having a sell. We're still not at absolute rock bottom levels where we all pile in, but the market is beginning to tell me that property is interesting. It's a problem. And that's a liquid, lumpy situation. So I think that's an area that we've got to keep an eye on. I think that in terms of the S&P, I think it's a more complicated story because a lot of these companies have refinanced out to seven or eight years and they don't have imminent, everyone says, oh, rates have gone up. A lot of these guys, they funded fixed one, two percent. They don't have that problem for a while. The person who has the biggest problem and the one I was, I pull my hair out is why did the US government not finance six, seven years, three years ago? Why were they funding three years when the yield curve was so low? And Janet Yellen has to take an enormous amount of blame for this. I mean, it was a dreadful decision, right? And, uh, you know, it just seems to me that at some point, and this is not the only one, but there's some European sovereigns as well. We've got a big problem for rates stay high, mediumly high for the next five or six years, because a lot of governments got three to six year lumpy debt renewals, right? And it's okay. If rates go up now and then come down, they're fine. But what if they stay high? That's a big problem. Well, the answer to your question is they knew they were going to upset the apple cart if they tried to do something longer duration and they want to continue to do short duration in the hopes that yields weren't going to move and they can continue to play this game, which is now not working for them. You know what? Tough shit, Janet Yellen. Uneasy is the head that lies the crown as Shakespeare. Yeah, but you can't completely say that, right? You could have played it. You could have started it. You said, I'm going to do a little bit more of the 10 year and a little bit more, a little bit. It's a bit like a QE, right? QT. You start with a number and you, you keep increasing. And unfortunately, eventually you do break things because you keep doing it until it breaks. But I don't think they even try, to be honest with you guys. That's what worries That's annoys me. I could do this for an hour. Tell our listeners and tell our viewers where they can find you in the fund. Okay, so we are obviously www.altanawealth, A-L-T-A-N-A, wealth.com. We are based in London, Monaco. Obviously, we're for sophisticated investors, no retail, I'm afraid. I'm very happy to talk to anybody about any of the subjects we talked today. Drop us an email. We've got 30 staff. Like I said, we're not a big firm, but we, you know, we're very approachable. You can get decisions very quickly. There's no bureaucracy. I would say our expertise, and I'm sure it be a sales pitch, but our expertise is in asymmetric ideas, as we talked about, big in the Venezuela trade. We were in Bitcoin in 2014, the first people in crypto because it was asymmetric. We do a lot of distressed 
uh, we've involved a lot of distress deals last 12 months next to a lot of distress around the world by the way at the moment we look at very interesting ideas and i think that gets high net worth family offices really excited because they can allocate not a huge amount of money but potentially make a lot i mean our crypto fund we got in at 435 and we took money off the table on the way up it's a one point it was up 100x that's a life-changing return for some of our investors it's a nice thing to say and by the way i want to be very clear we've had losers as well not everything yeah, can get that, right, that but... goes back to the asymmetric and i think yeah. you're speaking the language a lot of folks who who think about how to allocate towards alternatives how to allocate towards individual ideas that have the potential to moonshot and, and have vc like returns so listen lee I, I think you can tell from guy and me we really enjoyed this conversation well, i enjoyed it as well we could have gone on a lot longer and i'll just make you an invite when you are in New York City. Come in, sit down with us in studio. We'll drag Danny Moses in here from Parts Unknown, and we could go over some of the next big ideas that you're focused on for our listeners. And again, I think they tune in for a whole host of reasons, but they like ideas and they like ideas that have not been talked about again and again, because we tend to do that a little bit because we're oftentimes speaking to an audience that needs things that are accessible, right? That they can trade on their iPhone and the like. But I think what you guys are doing in the time horizon, the way you construct portfolios and think about things with two down and 10 up, I think that's the sort of ideas that a lot of our listeners enjoy. But, but I, I just want to say one thing, Freddie and Fanny, of course, good example, you can trade them yourselves. The difference between a professional and an amateur, everything in life, okay, whether it be property, whether it be finance, whatever it is, is not the ability to buy. Amateurs can often buy in a crash and they can take risks. They can be as good as anybody, right? What professionals are really good at is selling and knowing when to sell. And that's why you want to dialogue, not just with me, but with you and other people it's not about Lee. Don't tell me when to just to buy. Tell me also when I should be taking profits along the way and when I should be changing my allocation, this and the other. So when you speak to advisors, I would always say to people, when they give you an idea, make sure you pin them down to make sure they call you back to tell you when they're going to sell as well. And, and I think that's just so critical, crucial. That's the difference, I think. So some of these ideas are totally accessible to your clients, but who's going to tell them when to sell? That's right. All right, listen, Lee Robinson, we really appreciate it. Love you. to come back. And I'm in New York next year, so I'd love to come back. So Let, Let's do it. We're going to do it in person. Thanks so much for being with us on the tape. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Best of luck. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.